Welcome to the Center for Ethics podcast. Today we're talking to Anna Bergqvist, a senior lecturer and associate professor of philosophy at Manchester Metropolitan University. Welcome, Anna. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Um, instead of me introducing you more properly, I wanted us to begin with you describing yourself, trying to put yourself on the philosophical map of today, as it were. So, who is Anna Bergqvist, philosopher? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, so, in terms of my work, I uh, I work in a variety of fields, notably that of metaethics, uh, value philosophy, aesthetics, um, um, and in the last few years, I have focused specifically on the issue of perception and its uh, relation to uh, the um, uh, moral cognition, but also really trying to problematize um, the psychological. Uh, importance of agency and the first person perspective so that if you like that interest of really capturing the first person point of view in a relational meaningful way is one that informs all my work at the moment oh interesting um i mean if you look at back at traditional analytic philosophy one of the cornerstones originating from Frege and onwards for example Uh, was to separate the philosophical from the psychological. And um, what does it really mean to try to bring them together? I mean, do you have this fear that, for example, Frege had, that if if something becomes psychological, it becomes merely subjective or something like that? Oh, that's that's a very nice way of putting it. So, in fact, that, that very uh, uh, received dichotomy between Uh, the subjective, the objective, the mind, the world, and so on. Uh, that, I guess, is another cornerstone of all my work, trying to dislodge uh, that very sharp dichotomy. So I guess that's another way of describing my, my interest in point of view, of reconciling perspectivalism in that sense of, of, of capturing the, um, the stance from which all thought, including the value thought, originates, from some sense of objectivity that doesn't prescribe the uh, attaching importance to that very stance. So um, I think that you can uh, precisely uh, make progress with that core issue mm. in, in metaphilosophy by revisiting some of the initial um, starting points that indeed got Frege nervous and concerned in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I'm not saying that I, that I have the solution quite figured out yet, but... Oh, no, but. It's, it's a very big question. I mean, I take it that that's one of the questions that will travel with us for a long time. Um, I know we have a deep and profound interest in the questions of moral perception. Uh, so I wanted to read a passage for you from Iris Murdoch's book, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, and ask you to spell it out, as it were. So here's what Murdoch says. The moral life is not intermittent or specialized. It's not a peculiar or separate area of our existence. We're all always deploying and redirecting our energy, refining or blunting it, purifying or corrupting it. Sensibility is a word which may, which may be in place here. Happenings in consciousness so vague as to be almost non-existent can have a moral color. But are you saying that every single second has a moral tag? Yes, roughly. So what are your thoughts about this? <laughs> Yes, I think that's the enigma for, for all of us who are interested in, in really trying to understand this idea of situated evaluative thought. So um, I think um, um, Iris Maddox is responding to precisely a certain 
historical tradition within analytic moral philosophy, um, where, if you like, um, choice and indeed agency more generally is, is, is construed in overly individualistic terms so that, you know, you weigh the, uh, the value of the outcomes from a neutral stance and then you simply go for the one that is the most compelling. On the original, well, on the alternative model that I think is implicit in this in this passage, um, you have a vision of the moral agent that is already um, embedded in a wider social structure. And part of the difficulty is not just, if you like, that our all our um, thoughts and perceptions are in some sense shaped by the very immersion of that wider structure, but it's also, it raises that question of, of the continuous work that it takes to work on yourself in making explicit those pre-intentional structures. Mm. So, I mean, that's, there's a lot, lot, lot just there, but um, yes. Good. I mean, I take it that we have at least uh, three issues here now. Um, one is the relation of the individual to the community or the, to the world at large, as it were. Um, another is the question of the distinction fact-value. And the third is, is the question of when a moral work is done. Um, but let's start with the first one. I take it that you're absolutely right that for Murdoch it was really important to show that morality is not only an individual task in the sense of me choosing between neutral facts. Um, but what, what more, what does it really mean then to, to say that, uh, what's the alternative to strong emphasis on, on the individual? Because a lot of people like to think of morality as something that has to be tied to the individual. Uh, because if we can't, you know, pinpoint morality to a single person and a single act, the questions of responsibility seems to fall out of place. Um, so what happens to responsibility when you, as it were, broaden the horizon? Yeah, very good. I think that's, uh, I think that is exactly the core, the core issue. So, so let me backtrack a bit and, and, and just pause and explain a little bit more what I, what I mean by the social mm. background. So um, I take it that we can all agree that we can retain a, a place for for subjectivity. I guess what 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 I take Iris Murdoch to be interested in is the relational dimension of first person thought. Mm. So this idea here would be that the the views that you have are always in some sense placed in some wider context. Um, and coming back to the I guess the hard question of responsibility is, I think, precisely one of locating the room for individual responsibility. So I guess you could, you could quite easily become, uh, um, well, quite concerned in the following sense that, well, if it's true that um, my individual beliefs, desire, desires, thoughts, and so on, are uh, influenced by the wider horizon uh, that I'm already part of, uh, in the sense that actually the the way that I myself may not pre-reflectively frame the work might itself be 
taught to factors that are beyond my own control, precisely because of my immersion in that wider background structure, what happens to my responsibility? And and I I I think what 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 Iris Murdoch is is urging us is that reminder of the difficulty of moral perception, precisely because we have to safeguard against our own biases, our own, you know, uh, intuitive way of responding. And really, in some sense, you know, there's no, there is no outside on this view. And nonetheless, we can still retain a critical distance to our own responses. So I think that is what she means by the difficulty for moral perception. That's a phrase that she often uses, that, you know, moral perception is precisely not just opening your eyes and being impressed of the values that there are, it is it is an activity. It's a continuous activity that is hard, precisely because we are invested also in our uh, immersive projects and so yeah. forth. And that's why I take it that, well, for Murdoch, she always uses the concept of love or loving attention. Um, and that um, that means, I take it, that attention requires a fair amount of, of self-criticism involved. It's fighting your own egotism or, or desires. Um, but if that's the job, um, I mean, so the, the question of responsibilities is, seems then to be f- moved, as it were, uh, from, you know, the concrete actions to how you are as a, as a how you function as a human being. Um, and so um, it seems to me that the question becomes one of um, the, res- the question of responsibility seems to be moved to, you know, a question of character mm-hmm. rather than uh, a question of actions. Um, how do we then get back to questions of guilt and blame mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to individual actions and choices that people actually make? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think your diagnosis of, um, of responsibility being relocated to conditions for, so you, you mentioned character, I think I, I, I would phrase it in terms of pre, preconditions for, for agency, mm-hmm. the way that things are uh, set up in an interpersonal way. Um, and I guess that... I think we are faced with exactly the same challenge that Aristotle raised all those years ago about responsibility for your character. You know, there is, you know, on the one hand, our character is shaped uh, by the preconditions and so on, the kind of structures Mm. that we are thrown into in some sense. And nonetheless, uh, we also partly co-constitute our character through the choices that we make. Mm. And I think it, has, it is that sense of continuous, um, well, work or reflective work on the choices that you make where mm. that question of responsibility and also blame may come into place. Yeah. Um, um, and in ways that are, that is precisely a difficult task mm. because you, there is almost, I don't know if, if, I mean, I think in some passages of, of Iris Murdoch, there's always, there's almost this uh, suggestion that you need to, you need to almost 
inform your uh, interlocutor of these difficulties for them to take uh, that very question of choice seriously. Mm. Um, so I think maybe that's what she's doing in her literary work. You know, she shows us these these real rich characters who are precisely not just uh, uh, exemplifying virtue. They are struggling. They mm. are. They have difficulties, and they they make mistakes based on their own, <laughs> based on their blindness to themselves. Yeah. Um, so I think I mean sometimes you hear you hear I think quite unhelpful sum- summaries of these novels, you know, mm. the Black B- Prince being about I don't know, the platonic virtues or or some such analysis, and then I think you really miss the moral adventure, which is one of of showing how we go wrong yes. precisely because we are blind to the choices that we make. I agree with you. <laughs> um, but this is hard, right? So, you it's know... It's really it, hard. Um, I take it then... And I take things far too seriously anyway, so so if, you're, if, you, have, if you have that disposition, decision, things are really worse. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, coming back to the fact-value distinction then, um, I take it that for a lot of philosophers, maintaining that distinction is really, really important. And Murdoch is... is pretty adamant on, on showing that, uh, on trying to argue and showing the ways in which such a distinction is leading us astray. Um, so what's your own stance on that distinction? I mean, I, I take it that it's clear that we can make distinctions between questions of fact and questions of value. So um, you can approach this issue from, from two angles. One is to say, well, how then are facts and values intermingled? Uh, and you can have put it the other way around. Well, how are they separated? And, well, what are your thoughts about that distinction? What's its importance and what's wrong with it, yeah. if anything? Very good. So I, I think in terms of, you know, we, we can we can carve things up in a certain way. And, and I think at the level of, of the language, thus understood in terms of purely lexical meaning, you know, the meaning of words, I have no problems problem at all with with there being you know differences you know if you just look to how these words are defined in some sense but that i don't think is is what we're really interested in in understanding evaluative thought i mean evaluative thought is is dealing with concepts as opposed to words as it were um and i mean my own view and that i uh, my own view on on the the matter is that a, a sharp dichotomy between between the two is fundamentally unhelpful mm. um, and I think I still want to say that uh, whether or not some some thought counts as a, an evaluative thought is I wouldn't say just context dependent but that in itself is something that um, that arises relationally from a situation mm. um, and I, I take it that that may also be why. Um, so I'm doing quite a lot of work in philosophy of psychology at the moment, and I think there are some interesting, interested, interesting uh, models in um, relational therapy uh, that emphasises precisely um, the the no priority claim in the meaning in, in understanding how uh, individual terms operate. Mm. Um, so there is a sense in which to to understand what some concept, uh, what it's, what's the point of deploying it in a given context, that may also require 
an eye for the um, the, the stance from which it originates. So, mm. why 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 is is it that this particular concept is 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 applied? What is its significance here? Mm. Um, so. Yeah, so that's what I believe in in terms of evaluative thought. Yeah. So I think evaluative thought is is wider than uh, simply the evaluative words that we may yeah. use. Um, then I um, I'm reluctant to answer the question as to what what evaluative thought is because I'm not sure that that's a very helpful question. No, it's, so I'm, I'm avoiding the question. It's, it's probably my, my too answer. general to be answered. Um, this brings us back to the issue of thick concepts in a way that um, um, there are some concepts that seem to, as it were, carry uh, a, a certain amount of um, uh, moral evaluation just by being applied. Courageous would be one thing, for example. Um, and I take it that Murdoch has done some interesting work in relationship to that uh, because she says that, you know, even though we have a concept like courage, uh, that can still vary quite clearly from context to context. And one of her examples is that she says that I have a different concept of courage when I'm 20 and when I'm 40. Um, and that means that you can, for example, say that when you're 20, you jump off a cliff uh, because you want to show yourself courageous to your friends. Um, and then looking back uh, from the age of 40 or 50, you know, you say that, well, I now think that that wasn't courageous at all, that it was just stupid. Um, so I take it that um, that would be one example how, how one thick concept that seems to carry descriptive value, as it carry value just by means of being descriptive, changes over time. Um, and not merely from context to context, because we have two descriptions and two different descriptions of one event. Uh, and one of them is in. in in a, in a clearly positive sense, whether the other one is challenging the former evaluation. Um, so that brings me to the question of context. I mean, what is a context and what is a situation? Uh, because here we have, you know, we have one context, me jumping off a cliff. <laughs> and at the age of 20, I thought it was courageous. Um, at the age of 40, I think it's idiotic um, and not at all courageous. So. What about the question of truth here? Uh, so, th th thank you for that question. That, that's, that's, that is an issue that I have thought along, uh, along a great deal about. So, I think what I, what I would like to put forward in, and uh, certainly as a way of, of reading Iris Murdoch, uh, there is a sense in which I think, well, personally, I, I make a distinction between uh, the concept and, and one's conception of a concept. So, mm -hmm. I personally would say that you know, we can have we can have one universal concept, all right, that mm -hmm. of courage. And if we want to say, well, if we want to call it an evaluative concept, we can do so also. Nonetheless, that is compatible with your understanding or take on that changing over time. And I think that there is something like that going on precisely in in, in Murdoch's analysis. And the reason for that is that I I and this is another thing that I take from her work, and that is that evaluations on the model always takes place from a, an engaged worldview. Mm. So when we are dealing with conflicts here, to come back to the real question about um, truth, is, well, it's not clear that we're actually having a debate 
over uh, one specific claim. It's rather that you have two conflicting conceptions of the thing being being um, at issue. Mm. And of course, I mean, that raises a real question about truth. Uh, are, we, uh, are we talking about the same thing? What are we to say where you have, um, um, when, if you like, you have different ways of seeing the world or even, even, even different ways of, 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 of approaching a shared concept here? What are we to say about those cases? Mm. Um, and what I think I take, from I'm not entirely sure what what Doris Murdoch herself would would say on the matter in 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 my own view I I um I take it that that type of if you like plurality uh, in ways of interpreting or approaching some some object of inquiry is itself compatible with with there being a truth of the matter yeah um, it's just that that truth of the matter is itself perhaps part of the very process of mutual exploration. Mm. Perhaps yeah. that's right, you know, a regulative ideal or some... some, yeah. some. And how it's described. Um, yeah. One thought that I think is immensely interesting that Murdoch's philosophy highlights is the relationship precisely between words and concepts. And one of the things she says is that, you know, we often run into philosophical problems uh, because our words remain the same, whereas our concepts change. Um, so here we have a situation where we're using the word courage in two different ways. Uh, and she would say that we have different concepts. Um, and that raises the question of truth. I mean, I mean, I take it that truth, it was courageous of me to jump off the cliff, is true when I'm 20. Uh, but the question of truth when I'm 40 seems to, you know, be turned a bit differently because not the word is the same, but the concept is altered. That, that I have a richer, broader, wider uh, conception of truth at the age of forty. Um, a wider, different conception of courage at forty. Now, um, so there's there are two ways to to cash out this. One is to say that well, these are simply two different concepts. So one can you know the the, courage, the question of courage at the age of 20 was true then and false later on. Um, but if Murdoch is right, well, we have a different, the, the whole concept is different. Uh, now, I take it that you can either now say that, you know, since they are different, we have two competing truths. We have true at 20 and we have true at four, or false at 40, describing the same situation. Another way would be to say that, well, as we grow older and learn more about our concepts, I have a richer concept now. Uh, and that kind of shows the falsity in the previous use. Um, and I take it that that would be a claim that says that actually uh, my own view previously was false because I now understand uh, my now broadened and enriched concept of, of courage actually shows the narrowness of the previous one. And, and that makes it... I can now say uh, with confidence that it was false, uh, that conception. Do you see the conflict, the two alternatives here? I guess the only thing that I perhaps would not quite agree with, so, so I, 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 I do believe in the, in the second 
Mm. Uh, in this second take here, whereby we have en- enriched uh, 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 understanding, if you like, um, I still that is compatible with the being, you know, just, just one concept. It's just that the way that, that the guise of that con- concept is presented to you at different times in your life, mm-hmm. that will itself, I think, be be a function of your your perhaps differing um, worldviews at those different times. Mm-hmm. So, um, and once you work with different conceptions of, you know, one and the same thing, then there is a sense in which your your later one can uh, can perhaps incorporate the previous. You, you, you can understand the stance from which your previous self will come to the same conclusion, or to, to that very different outcome, and yet reject it now. Mm. Um, so I guess that's one way of understanding this wider idea of, of argumentation in terms of seeing, well, really appreciating uh, the ways in which one and the same object of analysis mm. can be presented in different ways from a different stance. Right. So it's not just stance taking, but it's one of, of if you like, um, relating to it. So mm. whether or not I want to say that that's, that's your, you know, my previous uh, view of courage was false, and now it's it's not. In which case, it would have been false all along. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I haven't decided on that. Oh, it's a tricky question. I know, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a bit suspicious of, of of saying that that my my previous self was operating with a different concept. I think the concept itself has become enriched. I have mm. you know broadened my um, my understandings of it, just as. You know, when we're dealing with aesthetic concepts, we can have, you know, we can think of, uh, you know, through exposure over time, we become aware of the different ways in which something can be, you know, um, complex. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There can be complexity in simplicity, given the right sort of context. Absolutely. I take it that one of the worries that remains in the background here is um, the cons- <laughs> relativism. Yeah. <laughs> that... Um, just because we and one endorses conceptual change and situatedness of moral thought, one does not necessarily want to end up in a relativistic position. No, and and I think again, I mean, I I, I haven't yet provided a positive answer as to what truth or objectivity might be, mm. um, but in terms of just stopping skepticism um, from taking hold, I think it's very important to distinguish between, on the one hand, this idea that uh, the judgments that we make may be interest relative, they may be shaped by these preconditions and so on. Mm. Uh, Broadly speaking, this idea that content is inseparable from point and purpose and so on. Yeah. And, and there is a sense in which I, I, I think that the two are, are, I mean, there is a way of understanding that as, uh, in terms of interdependency. You can't really understand the, co- the philosophical notion of content without an eye to purpose and right. con- conversely but that's that's just a claim about um our uh if you like evaluative practices you mm. know um that hasn't yet said anything at all about the 
the object of the evalu- evaluations that we make. Mm-hmm. So I think you're, you know, you're separating out what it is that we are talking about itself, yeah, very important. So I think it's perfectly fine to have pluralism uh, of perspectives, if you like, at the, at the point of view of, um, of argumentation, uh, of, uh, and so forth. Mm. And the mistake would be to infer from, you know, just the observation about the fluidity in our, in our practice of evaluation, mm. to, to, to infer from that, therefore, there is no truth to be had. Because that's a simply a different, that's a, a, that's a, a question about the, the content of the thoughts that are being issued in the first place. And I mean, I don't have an answer to the second question, but I think it is important to just keep these things distinct because the charge of relativism or radical perspectivalism is often one that is assumed might follow, mm. but that is simply because it's very easy to make that inference to the further claim. Yeah. And whilst I don't have a, an answer um, to that further claim, you know, what is truth, what is objectivity, that's fine, I think. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think it's just really important to, to, to don't be too alarmed. It's a bit like the old scepticism. Yeah. I mean, just because we don't have the answers yet doesn't mean that the question isn't good. <laughs> and if we had all the answers, we, yeah, we could just quit. <laughs> then we would be done. Um, a flip side of the, uh, this relativistic coin is, of course, um, a sense of, of things being too firm or too stable. And... Um, one worry that has been voiced by many people regarding various forms of philosophy that emphasizes moral perception is that such a view becomes conservative. That's mm-hmm. just the opposite view, actually. But, but uh, And the fear is, I take it, that if one claims that we cannot see a particular course of action as either good or bad, um, that it comes with us, it were, our perception that we see them as such, uh, that seems to render our moral views as something that really cannot be challenged. Uh, um, so what do you think about this charge of conservatism that has been raised? Yes, I mean, you know, it, it, I, think, I think that that charge is precisely particularly pressing if you um, do say with Aris Murdoch that there is a real sense in which the perceptions that we make are precisely shaped uh, historically mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, you know how, but I guess I mean if that analysis is 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 true that you know we are sometimes always always stuck in our social conventions mm. and its neuroses and so forth. I think that's just part of the predicament. I think that if anything raises that initial question that we had about responsibility makes it even more pressing. Mm. I mean, if you take in, um, the historical perspective into account here, I take it that there's something troubling with saying that we're just stuck with our situation because mm. that could give like the racist you know, mandate to say yeah. that, well, this is how I see things and, and I'm stuck with my situation. I'm, I'm not open to change. Uh, and I take it that we need a way to, to, to say that, well, situations can change as well and... and uh, being attentive to the facts can do that. Um, uh, so I take it that, that it's really important to, to find ways to describe in which 
attention to moral perception doesn't mean that our moral perceptions cannot change. No, absolutely, and and that is also the key the key uh, message that I find in it, both in this body of work that we have been discussing, but also in in that separation of, if you like, methodological questions, observation about evaluative practices on the one hand, and the more fundamental question of truth, mm. um, and you know that that reminder precisely that the work has not stopped by uh, by observing these uh, uh, you know structural features of perception mm. you know I, I think that's part of the work uh, and again the the concern for conservatism is I mean personally I, I found it very liberating Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just in that, you know, becoming aware mm-hmm. more, and I take that that's also what we find in uh, debates in social epistemology. I mean, there's a parallel debate there: mm-hmm. how our, you know, epistemic practices are similarly conservative mm-hmm. and similarly biased in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, and I, I, what I really take from that, from that body of work is, you know, the ethical dimension of 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 knowledge mm-hmm. um, and. So I think that there is an, a direct overlap between, you know, where this debate in metaethics mm. is going, what are the kind of the more difficult questions that it raises, and what we find in other domains. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is that we can make progress with those kind of metaphilosophical questions in metaethics precisely by looking at um, relational work mm. in epistemology and perhaps also uh, at the level of metaphysics. Mm. I take it that um, one of the merits of actually broadening the horizon of moral discourse is that whereas philosophy that focuses solely on actions or judgments, um, they get like one thing to discuss that seems very simple and you can say yes, no to say racism on that basis. Uh, um, but um if you bring in the situation, you can actually start thinking about where views come from, how they have been shaped, uh, and trace, you know, just not just making an action good or bad or a judgment true or false. You can also see where they come from and, and get an understanding of where people can go wrong. Um, so that gives us, as it were, more to think of and, and in a way more true descriptions of, of uh, the wrong or falsity of judgment, the wrongs of actions or the falsity of judgments. Um, on that note, um, let me give you another passage. We should end soon. Time is flying, I see. <laughs> but but uh, let me read just one more passage from Murdoch and ask you to comment about uh, on that. Here's what she says. When we apprehend and assess other people, we do not consider only their solutions to specifiable practical problems. We consider something more elusive, which may be called their total vision of life, as shown in their mode of speech or silence, their choice of words, their assessments of others, their conceptions of their own lives, what they think attractive or praiseworthy, what they think is funny, in short, the configurations of their thought which show continually in their reactions and conversations. Now, I read Murdoch as saying that these aspects of our lives seem to have been forgotten or perhaps repressed, especially when we reflect, reflect upon morality. Um, and it seems to apply that she claims that philosophy must attend to a much broader and richer horizon, the whole world, life at large, as it were. But how do we do that? 
I mean, I take it as a methodological question. What would it really mean to attend to such a broad horizon on personality and morality and philosophy? Oh, what a what a wonderful question! Uh, I think I think I need to move into this center <laughs> to answer it fully. Um, um, what would it take? Well, um, okay. So I think I think one thing that uh, that. And this actually raised one thing that Pepe spoke of, of on ca- uh, off camera yesterday. Mm. This idea of of uh, well, remembering Wittgenstein's remark that you know, of, on the one hand, we have the famous remark that uh, that meaning is used and all the rest of it. But there's also this other reminder that understanding understanding what I said is like walking up to, to someone. Yeah. So uh, relating back to Murdoch, you know, what's what's the What's the significance of precisely that looking up to someone? And uh, one thing that I, I think is, is worth remembering from this passage is that mirroring of the other. Mm. So what it takes, I think, is not only that of, I don't know, tuning into the other person's stance, which is, I think, what, what she really would be requiring, that in order to, you know, to say, to make a recommendation, really need to know the uh, reality mm. of the other person and their particularity. But in terms of, if you like, what it would require for us in, in improving us as moral agents, I think is precisely that of recognising uh, the importance of others onto your own self. You know, this, this, this allowance that I may be mistaken in my own mm. readings of these situations. And I take it that that's, it's like that risk of walking up to someone, the, yeah. the, the, the moral risk of walking up to someone in that real sense of trying to get to know them is precisely that they can look back. And I mean, metaphorically, mm. that's the real risk here. I mean, serious, serious moral reflection requires that acceptance that yeah. I may be mistaken. And I th- take it that's also part of the difficulty mm-hmm. because, you know, the more invested that we are in our theoretical stances and so on, that very predicament for moral thought becomes more entrenched. Yeah. And that makes the a common philosophical view uh, that good analysis requires a certain form of detachment Mm-hmm. Uh, or a scientific attitude, mm-hmm. it renders that view kind of problematic. It gives some difficulties for that view, I take it. Um, good. Um, let me put just one final, very difficult question on the table and see what we can do with it. Um, how about this? Um, if it's true that our morality is rooted in one's worldview, to use a term that uh, is broad enough, I take it, um, which means that our morality is, one's morality is one's whole horizon. Uh, this means that I take it that there are limits to what one can find as meaningful or moral or a morally acceptable thing to say or a morally acceptable thing to do. But where does that leave us with the question where worldviews are in conflict? Um, how does one mediate between different conceptions at the level of worldview? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, that 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 is that is a real question. I'm not sure if I have a full answer uh, that would satisfy a skeptic, for instance. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you did. <laughs> but, but 
Um, I think one, 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 one thing that I would like to say is perhaps the, uh, the risk of over-exaggerating the challenge. You know, what, is, what is asked by being, by being, uh, um, by raising the question? So I think that the, the right way of responding, of, of, of being alarmed is precisely, um, you know, taking the challenge seriously in as much as you realize you're open to alternative interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that I have always thought is actually a positive feature of, of disagreements in worldviews. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that there are disagreements in worldview will actually force you, if you're serious in your, uh, in your ethical ende- endeavor, to look, to look more carefully mm-hmm. at the, uh, your own stance. So you have that mirroring and the, again, going back to this idea of, of an ethical risk of really hearing a conflicting stance, yeah. I think itself can form a, um, a type of moral improvement. Mm. So I would, I would, I think, change the question to, you know, how do we know, how do I know that I'm correct yeah. um, to that of accepting the ethical risk that I may have missed something. Mm. And if you have that view, well, if you have that way of thinking of the predicament, if it is indeed a predicament, because mm. that's an open question in itself, then that Murdochian idea of refining your perception actually starts to make sense because right. you, you become aware of a, a richer variety of ways of seeing the world. Mm. And that in itself, I think, is a form of perceptual improvement. You, know, you become, you bec- you, your, your range of possible understandings of one and the same item of mm. evaluation is broadened. And I think that in itself takes effort and great work. How interesting. So I could say that... So again, I, I am avoiding answering no, the question. I don't, think, <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't suspect, you know, a 30, 45 minute conversation could give, you know, conclusive answers to philosophical issues. So you don't worry. Um, but I take it that one of the conclusions I could say that, well, if we manage to broaden the horizon of philosophy, we would have better chances of actually being sincere and uh, better in the, the work of self-criticism. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and the, the last thing that I, that I want to add before, before we wrap up here is that, you know, the Murdoch's idea of, of love. I mean, there is that, um, the, what is this emphasis on, on particularity doing? Well, there is a sense in which um, she's interested in asking what is, what is the point of raising this particular issue here? Now, where is this person coming from? And that, that's a different type of ethical endeavor altogether. Mm. Um, you know, seeing, seeing that wider um, question of meaning or significance, yeah. uh, which I take it is, is another part of that initial, well, that previous quotation that you had about learning, getting mm. to really know that person. Yeah. I mean, why is that important? Well, you get a sense, not just where they're coming from, but... but what is that issue in the here and now? Mm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, we should conclude, but thank you so much, Anna, for uh, coming to visit us and agreeing to have a short conversation with us. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.